Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 88. Today, we are talking about building wealth through real estate. As you may have heard on my Instagram stories or in my little announcement on my Year of Fun in Review episode or the episode I did last week with Brad the Boo as my very special, special guest, Brad and I bought a second house last month in December of 2018 thus marking the official start of our real estate investment business. I wanted to answer a bunch of questions that came up about that, so I started to just write a little outline of all the things I wanted to mention and cover about our journey into real estate property management and ownership, and it turned into a massively long (laughs) blog post that I can't even begin to cover on today's episode, or we'll be here for way too long. So, For those of you who want the step-by-step, play-by-play story behind how Brad and I saved up a down payment, found and bought our first fixer-upper house, spent most of 2017 into some of 2018 fixing it up, and then leveraged the equity in that fixer-upper to purchase our second home last month, which we've since moved into, and found tenants for the first home, our brick bungalow, Every single detail is in the blog post that corresponds with today's episode at bossedup.org slash episode 88. If you're listening to this in your Apple iTunes app, I will link to it as the first show note from today's episode. So if you really want to know the nitty gritty story of exactly how it all went down, I'm afraid I can't cover it in a podcast like I thought I could. It's just too long. So if you want the details, there's a post um, with our story as well as some takeaways and things for you to think about if this is something that you want to do too. For today's episode, I wanted to bring in someone who knows more than I do because we're still just figuring this stuff out anyway. And I would be negligent if I were to position myself as some kind of real estate expert just because we have dipped our toe into the proverbial real estate investing pool. So on today's episode, instead of me telling you my experience alone, I wanted to bring in expert Mindy Jensen. Now, Mindy Jensen, if you are a big-time podcast listener, you might already know her name because she is the co-host of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, where they cover all things about becoming financially free. But Bigger Pockets is the brand for which she is a community manager that happens to be based here in Denver, right down the street from where we first were renting our apartment when we first moved here to Denver. And Bigger Pockets is one of the most respected online real estate networking and information platforms. It's created for professionals, investors, homeowners, and just other 
real estate aficionados and boasts over 450,000 members. Their website is absolutely massive. Their forums are bursting with information and conversation between folks in the real estate game at every level who are there to really help each other figure stuff out. I have to say, I joined the site myself as we were starting to figure all this stuff out. And being the bookworm that I am, Brad and I actually bought the Bigger Pockets Presents book called The Book on Flipping Houses, How to Buy, Rehab, and Resell Residential Properties, which is a book by Jay Scott and published by Bigger Pockets. It was a very helpful, straightforward sort of rundown of all the different nuances behind how you can get into the real estate investing game. Anyway, I hold it here in its very dog-eared <laughs> cover that we have because Bigger Pockets has long been a part of how Brad and I figured out the way forward for us. So it's just such an honor and it just sort of tickles me to have Mindy, of all folks, joining me on the podcast today to share some of her best tips for those of us who are just getting into or considering getting into real estate, not just to buy ourselves a home, but as part of our strategy for long-term economic stability and really looking at real estate as a business venture, not just a lifestyle choice. So a little bit about Mindy. She'll tell you more about herself as we go through this interview, but here are some basics you want to know. She's been investing in real estate since 1996 and recently earned her Colorado real estate license. She loves helping folks find the right home and really analyze that home to make sure it's a good investment property. She's flipped several houses, living in them before renting them out to avoid capital gains taxes, which we'll talk more about in today's conversation. She's hired a few contractors in her day, but does a lot of the home improvement work herself and loves every aspect of real estate. A fellow Coloradan, Mindy has been working with Bigger Pockets as the community manager for just about four years now. Mindy, thank you so much for joining me on the Boss Up podcast today. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. So I am particularly excited about this topic because I am new to the real estate investment game myself. And whenever I learn something or I can figure out how to make a boss move happen in my life, I always try to bring the bossed up community along with me. And you are like 10 steps ahead <laughs> in terms of <laughs> understanding the big money moves it takes to get into this game of real estate investing. So I'm so excited to have you here to shed even more light on what real estate investing is all about. So can you tell me a little bit about first how you got involved in this entire space? I am cheap. I am super, super, super cheap. And I paid rent for, I think, like six months. And I was like, well, I am not going to be throwing away my money anymore. I'm going to go buy something. And all I could afford was this kind of crappy condo in an area I was unfamiliar with. And it was really ugly. But I can fix ugly. I can't fix the fact that I have no money in my account. Mm. So I bought it. I made it pretty. And when it came time to sell, because I was getting married and my husband had a single family home. I didn't like living in a condo. But when it came time to sell, I had bought it for $50,000 and I sold it for $75,000. I'm like, wait, what? $25,000 that I get to keep because I had lived there for at least two years and the rules had changed by the time I bought the condo that I didn't pay any capital gains taxes on that. Basically, I was able to enter my marriage completely debt-free because I had bought this house, because Amazing. I'm too cheap to pay rent. So I was like, wait, that much money? I'm going to do this again. 
Yes. Being cheap is actually a huge part of how we made this happen too. It's so funny because there is a lot of cash involved in making a real estate purchase happen. But I think the way that we get there is by being super cheap. And I'm actually telling the full story of how Brad and I managed this in today's corresponding blog post that goes with this conversation. So, I mean, it's such a long story, but essentially it's we lived on the cheap for all of our 20s. And that's that's how it starts. So that is my next question for you, Mindy, is really why should our listeners consider real estate? Why real estate? Why is that a good investment? And you know, it's sort of a sketchy time in our economy right now. I wonder if it's a good investment always and and what your take is on that. Well, so there's basically two types of ways to invest in real estate. There's like a thousand, but the two main ones are either being a landlord or flipping, like fix and flipping, especially with HGTV shows and that. So being a landlord, why should people invest invest in real estate as the landlord? There are always going to be people who need a place to live that don't want to buy can't buy, aren't qualified to buy, don't want to be there for a super long time. So there's always going to be people who want to essentially buy the product that you're selling, which is a place to live. There is, is this the right time to buy? Yes and no. I mean, there's always going to be people who need to rent. And if you can run your numbers and make sense of it, then it makes sense. Not every property is good for fix and flipping. Not every property is good for being an investment, like a rental property. But when you find one that makes sense, the numbers are going to make sense in an up market. They're going to make sense in a down market. What doesn't make sense is buying property when you don't have any money, buying on like super leveraged and then something happens. If you can't afford the mortgage payment for six months with no tenants, then you need to focus first on saving up that cushion because Murphy's Law kind of runs real estate. And as soon as you buy a property, something breaks. And the cost of that something that broke is inversely proportionate to how much money you have in the bank. You've got $50,000 in the bank, you're gonna get like a new outlet that needs to be replaced. You have $5 in the bank, you're gonna need a new furnace, a new roof, a new air conditioner, a new like everything. So if you don't have the money, you need to save that up first. That's a really good way of looking at it. And I guess the scary thing about being in a dicey economy is actually related to the last episode I just put out, which is how to protect your own job in an uncertain economy. So you want to make sure that you feel a sense of job security. You want to make sure that your income is not highly variable and you want to make sure that you have cash on hand. Yes. And not only you, but your tenants too. You rent to somebody who then suddenly loses their job. Paying you rent might not be their first priority. Right. Or possibility. Yeah. And then it gets into some really dicey territory. Now you're speaking to all of my fears as a brand new landlady. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But I want to think about the home buying process in general. A lot of us, especially as millennials, which is the majority of my audience at Boss Up, we're just trying to figure out how to buy a house, period, right? The American dream for our generation feels like a little scary. We've got student loans. How do we save up for a down payment and move into a house? My question is, how is looking at real estate to be your home different than looking at real estate as an investment strategy? And is it that different? Because the example you gave of your cheapness leading you to buying a house pretty quickly sounds like you were able to do both. So tell me more about the home buying process for someone who's thinking about saving up for a down payment. How should she be thinking about the house she's going to purchase? Is it a forever home or is it an investment property or or could it be both? It could definitely be both. 
The difference with an investment property and an owner-occupied property, especially for millennials or people who don't have just piles of cash sitting around, is the amount of money that the bank is going to require you to put as a down payment. As an owner-occupant, you can get an FHA loan that requires you to put down 3.5% of the purchase price. You can buy a $100,000 house for $3,500, which is, you know, you don't have any skin in the game if you were doing that as an investor, you could just, in theory, walk away. Why would I stay with this house that all of a sudden the furnace broke and it costs more to replace the furnace than I put down in the property? Mm. Whereas when it's your primary residence, you have a lot of skin in the game because that's where you're going to live. Right. Investment loans are typically 25%. So that same $100,000 property, you have to come up with $25,000 as your down payment. So that is a little bit different when you're looking at an investment. Also, when you're looking for an investment, as a landlord, you want a property that is going to appeal to a lot of tenants. So that means, you know, in a nice neighborhood, in a safe neighborhood, women don't want to walk to their house at night in a kind of sketchy neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's always the concept that maybe that's the only thing you can afford. But when you're investing, you want a property that appeals to the most people. So you have the widest pool to choose from when it comes to choosing tenants, or if you're flipping it, when it comes to flipping tenants, unique is a four letter word in real estate investing. So you don't want that, you know, super cool dome house because nobody else likes a dome house. Apologies to any listeners who are dome homeowners, <laughs> but that is definitely a minority. You're going to appeal to a very few amount of people. Whereas right. the cookie cutter subdivision houses, they're easy to get a value on. They're easy to get somebody in because it's not weird. Right. I think your point about the lending is huge and cannot be overstated. If you are going to buy a house that will immediately be a rental property, you're going to have to have a lot more cash on hand to make that happen. Whereas the beauty of FHA loans and some of those first-time home buyer programs out there, are they're, they're designed to get you into a home and in a mortgage with less cash up front, which can be good. Brad and I, in our case, we bought a house with a traditional mortgage to be owner-occupied. So we lived in the house. And then after making improvements for a year and a half, almost two years, we were able to purchase another house and turn house number one into a rental property. So it's something of a workaround. Granted, we still put a ton of cash down because the way we purchased house number one was kind of not traditional. (laughs) But it can also be done that way too. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a really great way to get into it. I do want to specify that most, if not all, mortgages will come with a at least one year owner occupancy period where the bank wants you to be living there for at least a year. Right. And it is considered mortgage fraud and it's a felony and it's punishable by up to five years in prison to say that you're going to live there and not. Now, I'm saying that and making it sound scary so people don't think, oh, well, I'll just say I'm going to live there and then not. Obviously, your mileage may vary regarding you know enforcement on that. I would not want to jeopardize five years of my life in a felony conviction for a 3.5% mortgage. Right. I would just live there for a year and then move on. So just know the rules and don't break them. Know the rules. Yes. I am telling you the rules, how you apply them to your life is your business. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about a different type of strategy called house hacking. Please. That is where you buy more house or more property than you need and you rent out the extras. One way to do this is in a small multifamily, a two unit, a three unit, a four unit, up to four units, you can still get a residential mortgage. The mortgage is based on your finances as opposed to the deal itself. A five right. units and over is commercial. I'm not a commercial expert, so I'm not even going to talk about that. 
But let's say you buy a duplex. You live in one half, you rent out the other half. Yeah. Many cases, the other half will pay for most or all of your mortgage. Right. So you're essentially living for free because you're living in a duplex or right. a triplex. Or another way to do this is to buy more house than you need. One of the guys that we work with here at Bigger Pockets bought a five bedroom, two bath house. Five bedrooms are not super popular with people. That it only has two bathrooms is not super right. popular with people. He lives in one room. He rents out the other four. And that brings in not only his entire monthly payment on his mortgage, but about a thousand or twelve hundred dollars over on top of that. Wow. Yeah. So he's actually getting paid to live for free. Amazing. And getting other people's money into your mortgage payment is what this is all about. It's funny, yes. you're reminding me of one of our Bossed Up Trainer Team members. She's a financial advisor. She's gone through all of our programs here at Bossed Up. And she and her husband recently purchased their first home with a separate basement unit in Washington, D.C., which is a very pricey real estate market. And granted, she's outside of D.C. just by a smidge into Maryland, I believe. But they renovated the basement apartment to give it a fresh-looking, fully functional kitchen downstairs. And now they've got Airbnb going and they've got tenants going and that's covering their mortgage. That's a super expensive area. And bonus, there's not a lot of multi-unit properties in the Washington, D.C. area. Right. So know your market, know what renters are looking for, and think about what you can personally sacrifice because sharing your house with four tenants is a sacrifice that your colleague is making, but it sounds like it's giving him a net profit of over $1,000 a month. So decide if you're going to look at real estate as a business opportunity, there's going to be work involved. I think there's some folks who think, oh, this is like a turnkey operation. Some of our friends over the holidays said something to us when Brad and I were sharing the good news with our family that, wow, we're in this, you know, we got skin in the game now. And they're like, oh, you know, it's going to be a lot of work because they're going to call you in the middle of the night and your tenants are going to need things of you. I'm like, yeah, that's what the mortgage payment is for. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like this is an exchange of services and, you know, knowing that you can make deals like this work, but also acknowledge the work involved, right? And the risk that you're taking. Yes. So I've got two things to comment about that before we go to the next question. First of all, the more work you do up front in tenant screening and, you know, getting the property all fixed up, fixing those little problems that, you know, you might be okay with, but you know, somebody else is going to be annoyed with the more work you do up front, the less work you do on the back end. Yeah. And I hosted a panel at a conference this year and I asked the four real estate investors who were on my panel, how many times have you gotten this 2am phone call, this mythical 2am phone call? Yeah. One investor said once in 10 years and 90 units. Another said never in four years and eight units. Another one said never in four years and four units. And the fourth one said never, but I did get a phone call from my neighbor about an impromptu rap concert on my front lawn (laughs) at two o'clock in the morning with pictures. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And that's because she didn't screen her tenants. Right, right. I'm telling you, the more work you do up front, you significantly increase your chance of having never a hiccup with your tenant. So question for the financial side of things, because I know you cover a lot of the money components on your podcast. What are some of the first steps that my listeners need to take to start getting their financial ducks in a row, so to speak, to begin exploring real estate purchases, first-time home purchases, or real estate as an investment strategy kind of purchases? 
you need to take a look at your strengths and weaknesses, just your personality in general. You need to take a look at your general local market. Yeah. Something we like to talk about on our real estate podcast is that within two hours of any location in America, there is an area that is cash flowing. So living in New York City, it's probably not going to cash flow. That is a high dollar figure price to get into the rental market. And just to jump in to explain what cash flow means, you're saying cash flow would be your mortgage payment is less than what you could get for rent. Yeah? Yes. And there's other expenses involved, but generally your expenses are going to be less than your payment. So you're actually making money. Right. Okay. Buying a job is a bad idea. Right. (laughs) So, you know, within two hours of where you are, if your market isn't a cash flowing market, you can find a local market that is. You can also decide that, you know what, my local market just is not great. I want to go someplace else. The center of the country is great for cash flow, not so great for appreciation. The corners, the outside of the country is great for appreciation and not so much for cash flow. Yeah. So, I mean, who wants to live in the middle of the country when they can live on the coast and live by the beach. I mean, that would be great, but you know, we can't all afford that. So well, it says us living in Colorado. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Well, Colorado's great too. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Um, one of my listeners who came to a live podcast event I did in New York was just in town, dropped me a line. We went out for dinner because she is an accountant. She lives in New York city and she's a real estate investor on the side. She's got multiple homes that she owns in Pflugerville, Texas, which is a little suburb of Austin, Texas that I happen to know very well because my older brother, when he left the military, settled in Pflugerville of all places. <laughs> um, and she and I were talking, you know, how on earth do you manage multiple properties that you own with tenants in suburban Austin when you're in New York City? And she's like, listen, this is the area of the country where I knew I could get a good deal. And it's actually, you know, like you said, all the work I do up front in terms of screening tenants and making sure the properties are in good shape means it's actually less work than you might think. So being able to be a long distance landlady is also very possible. And the same amount of screening that you're putting into your tenants, you want to put into a local property manager, somebody who's in Pflugerville, Texas, (laughs) Who can yeah. go over and, you know, make a walkthrough of the property and say, oh, we need to make this fix or, you know, get more land, more tenants in there or whatever. And I would say if you are in one of the higher cost areas, look at the different locations. You know, biggerpockets.com has a forums where you could go in and yeah. ask questions about anything. There are lots of posts about, oh, where's the best place for cash flow? And it's basically the center of the country. How do you choose a location? Well, where do you know people? Maybe you grew up in Iowa or perhaps your best friend lives now in Ohio. Having somebody who knows the area can be really helpful. And, you know, when you know somebody who can be your boots on the ground, go out and visit them. Right. Under the guise of, I'm going to see some real estate (laughs) while I'm here. Yeah. If you don't like that market, then, you know, pick another one. Once you find a market you want, start looking for a property manager. Yep. Landlording is really the most popular way to invest in real estate. So that's really what I'm focusing on right now. But you can do long distance flips. I think that's much more risky. Yeah. There are no shortage of shady contractors out there and, you know, shady work in general. So I think landlording is the best long distance option. And there's, once you have a really great property manager, I mean, that makes or breaks your business. Yes. You know what I found most interesting about her example and, and her story when she shared it with me was that she rents in New York City. So 
you know, the realities of New York is that she's not going to buy a house in Brooklyn, per se, anytime soon. She would rather spend her money buying houses elsewhere that she rents out and renting herself in, in the Empire State, in the in the capital of the world, the Big Apple. So it's an interesting way of looking at things. And one of the other anecdotes she shared with me that I wanted to ask you about is that she went to a real estate investing conference recently. There were probably 200 to 300 people there, and there were two women at the conference, herself yeah. included. So my question is, Bigger Pockets is an awesome community online, but everywhere I've seen when it comes to conversations involving real estate investing, there aren't women there. And I wonder why that is. You know, I think that there's a lot of women who allow the fact that it's male heavy yeah. to, I don't want to say intimidate because that sounds bad, but like to kind of intimidate them. Sure. You're not out there lifting the houses. You're just buying them. Yeah. Nobody's lifting your house. You don't have to be huge and muscle bound and you know, you can do this. Yes. If you can run the numbers and figure out, is this a good property or not? You can invest in real estate. I wish that there were more women. I would love ideas to attract more women to the yeah. site because we run about 70, 30 men. Yeah. And, you know, it's great that there's so many men that are that are here on the site, but it's really nice to have more women involved too. And I wish they would come. I do know from personal experience flipping houses, there are some contractors out there who will be like, oh, honey, don't worry about anything. Oh, just tell me what color you want. I know. I have many a story of that. <laughs> yeah. Do not call me honey. And number two, there's the door because right. you called me honey. Yeah. Don't do business with these people who make you feel bad. Right. There I are contractors out there who will understand what you're looking for, will help you figure out what you need. You don't have to be an expert in everything. Right. And bigger pockets is like I said, the forums are huge to help you answer the questions that you have. Totally. And what I love about it is it's a community, right? People aren't necessarily there to sell the stuff that they do to you. They're there to collaborate and share information. It's a really beautiful place. Yeah. They're actually not allowed to sell their stuff on right. the forums. Our forums are lightly moderated to keep all those ads right. and spam out. It's great. Into an online forum and it's like, buy gold, live nude girls. And it's like, where's the information? We get rid of all of that so that you just have the information. So let's talk a little bit further about fix and flips for a moment, because as you were describing the sexism inherent in some of the buildings trades, you're triggering all these memories for me because Brad and I, the first house we bought had a crumbling foundation and was a huge project. And we were like, we're going to get it anyway. You know, the way we split up duties between the two of us, I'm the chief negotiation officer, financial officer of the family. And he is boots on the ground, handyman with the tool belt, figuring things out and building our kitchens prettier, right? But I remember as a part of our vetting process of this house, I was the one who was home or who was around and available when a structural engineer came out to the house. We paid for a structural engineer to look at the house to tell us, is this house going to fall down? How big of a project would this be? And I remember him saying, sweetie, I would walk <laughs> away from this project if I were you. <laughs> and I was like, don't call me sweetie either. Are you kidding me? First of all, he was like, yes, calling me sweetie was not a good touch. But then he was like, I don't think you're up for this challenge, which of course just made me want to buy the house more. And we ended up getting a second opinion and thinking this guy was full of shit for some reason. And we did spend $30,000 on helical piers and strengthening our foundation, which was the least fun money I've ever spent in my life. But it wasn't beyond what I was capable of doing. And there's going to be lots of people in this industry that might tell women, especially when it comes to fixing and flipping, 
you might not be capable of this. You might not want to take this on. It's got, there's a lot of moving pieces here, but just like financial advisors can sometimes do that in inadvertently to women. I feel like women have to, we need to know that we can figure it out. Whatever it is, there's resources out there. Bigger Pockets is definitely one of them. And you can find your way to the right answers with the right people. You can. And when it comes to small repairs or even like not so small repairs, YouTube can teach you how to do almost anything. Probably not, you know, helical. What did you say? I don't even remember. Yeah, you definitely, (laughs) definitely not. (laughs) At least fun money that you've ever spent. That's definitely money you should spend. You should not try to DIY that. But there's a lot of things you can do yourself. I've been doing this since God was a boy and there was no YouTube and there was no internet when I started investing. And now there is. We're in the best time possible to figure out like, how do I change this outlet? You know what? Electricity is not that hard. Right. Step one, turn off the breaker. And <laughs> That's then, an important you know, step. <laughs> yeah, very, very, very important step. But after that, like if you do it wrong, then you could just call an electrician to come right. over and fix it. Or plumbing isn't that hard either. People get the heebie-jeebies. Oh, I don't want to do this. I actually don't have the strength in my arms to tighten up the plumbing enough so that it doesn't leak. So I would definitely, you know, assess your own skills first. Sure. But, you know, you could do this and you could do investing. And if you get... A contractor who just says, oh, honey, oh, sweetie, just say, you know what? You can leave. You don't even need to finish that sentence. Goodbye. I don't want to talk to you anymore. There's plenty of people. We actually did have to let someone go after he called me bratty for telling him how to do his job because I was his boss. (laughs) And he said that I was being bratty. And I said, well, you're, you know, you're fired, basically. You know, what's interesting. Also, I got this wonderful book from my mother-in-law when we first ventured into our first fixer-upper type house, all about a woman's guide to fixing everything around the house. And you're right, it's much more approachable than we think. The one thing I will say is don't let HGTV set unrealistic expectations for you. (laughs) I will second that wholeheartedly (laughs) with an exclamation point at the end. Brad's always teasing me for saying, oh, it was done in a half an hour with commercial breaks on HGTV. Why can't we fix this house up in a half an hour? You know, and and Joanna and Chip Gaines make it look so easy, folks. It's not that easy. It's just like a lot of time is what it takes. So it's either going to be time or it's going to be money. There's a value in figuring out which you have to spare and when. But I have to say there's nothing more rewarding than getting in the game and seeing that you can improve a space like the way we improved that house. Not only was it satisfying over the course of a year when I wasn't like up to my eyeballs in uh, plaster sanding our 110-year-old plaster walls was not so fun, but it was satisfying to see a job well done. But then the bank also decided to re we had them, you know, reappraise our house and they said, "Good job. You've improved the value of your house by $100,000 in less than 2 years." And that was extremely gratifying in a financial kind of way because that made our next home purchase possible in a lot of ways. And you didn't put $100,000 into no, it. Exactly. You know, when you're doing the work yourself or you're doing some of the work yourself, all that money just that you're not paying the contractor just goes right into your pocket from Uncle Sam. Exactly. Did you live in there for two years? Just about. Okay. Because when you live in and own for two of the last Uh five years, when you go to sell it, you pay no capital gains taxes because it's your primary residence. Well, for us in this particular situation, we don't want to sell anytime soon. We're going to hold on to this baby for a while. Yeah. Well, when it's time to sell, please contact your local tax advisor, yada, yada. But that's a viable way to 
you know, do a fix and flip. If you're going to do the property yourself, maybe you don't have a boatload of money to do this. Sure. What we do, the way that my husband and I invest is we buy a very ugly property. We move in ugly, but habitable. So it's not a meth house. It's not a mold house. Right. It doesn't have a broken foundation that you can't you know, enter. I actually have never tackled foundations. So kudos to you. <laughs> we started early. <laughs> you started early, jump in with both feet. So we buy the house, we move in, and then we live in it in the construction zone for two years. Yeah. Then when we go to sell it, all that money goes to our pockets oh, instead of Uncle Sam. We pay no capital gains taxes. Interesting. So that's just a way to like parlay your money into like the next house or the next yeah. two houses. Yeah. The HGTV comment reminds me of we were going to buy this house and then somebody else bought it instead. Very ugly. And I was going to have our cameraman come in and you know document all the steps that we're taking on this house just to show this is what a real flip looks like. Right. It looks ugly and it's messy. And, you know, sometimes things go wrong. Look, there's water shooting out of the wall because I hit a pipe. Yeah. Sometimes that happens. And, you know, it's not the end of the world. Right. I like how on Fixer Upper, they kind of manufacture drama. Like, oh no, we have to decide if we want the balcony or the front door to be moved. And you're just like, that's not the real kind of drama that you run into. But I guess that they're representing all the many dramas that I'm sure did come up. So it's a good reminder. And it's interesting to hear about your strategy because once again, what you're sacrificing and you're choosing to sacrifice this is that you're living in a construction zone. And Brad and I have made that same choice because we also are living where we're improving all the time and trying to leave better houses behind. Okay. Well, I think we've covered a lot today, Mindy. I can't thank you enough for sharing so many insights for those who are thinking about jumping in to this game, to this adventure. What would you give in terms of last words of advice for any of our lady listeners who are thinking about taking the first steps to exploring if real estate investment is for them? I would say figure out what kind of investing you want to do. If you're interested in real estate investing, there is a way for you to invest in real estate. Look at your finances and see what sort of financial hit you can take and whether. I can't take a million dollar hit, but I could take a $10,000 hit. I could take a $25,000 hit. I don't want to, but I could. Yeah. Look and see what sort of hits you can take and then start exploring what looks good to you. Do you want to fix and flip? Do you want to live in flip? Do you want to be a landlord? Do you want to be completely hands-off and do like a real estate investment trust, kind of like a real estate mutual fund? You buy it like a stock. Do you want to invest in syndication? There's a lot of ways to invest in real estate that are hands-on and there's a lot of ways that are hands-off. So, you know, just figure out what you really want out of it and come over to Bigger Pockets and make it happen. I love it. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. To learn more about Mindy, head to biggerpockets.com and feel free to sign up for your free social media profile there. This is not sponsored by Bigger Pockets, by the way. I'm just a big fan and have found the resource truly helpful. Mindy also wanted me to tell you that she loves answering questions directly. So if you want to ask her anything, feel free to reach out. Her email is Mindy, M-I-N-D-Y, at biggerpockets.com. And now it's time for this week's Boss Move Moment of the Week. Hi, Emily. My name is Cheryl, and I'm calling from Long Island, New York. And my biggest boss-up move for 2018 was eliminating toxic people in my life, removing myself from 
unhealthy situations, unhealthy cycles, and unhealthy people. And just focusing on my inner strength, my inner peace, my spirituality, and all of the positive things in my life. And that's actually was really the only um, boss move that I made, but it also was the best move that I've ever made in my entire life. And I also had to look inside myself and do some soul searching, and I had to eliminate my own toxic beliefs, my own toxic patterns, my own toxic thought process. So I saved that for last because that was the most important. Overall, I know it's all one. It incorporates the one major boss move to say I'm just being positive. Get it, boss. We are cheering you on and thanking you so much for calling in to share your come up story. You really never know who you're inspiring when you choose to call in and share your achievements. So if you've got a boss move that you've made any time in the last year, really, and you want to share it with our community, we're waiting to hear from you. Give my hotline a ring right now at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. And you also might want to save that number in your phone right now for the next time you've got a career conundrum. I'm looking to put together more episodes soon that answer directly the career conundrums that you're wrestling with right now. So if you've got a question about an upcoming job interview, a negotiation that you're in the midst of, a sticky situation with colleagues at work, remember you help me steer this show by calling in with your questions so I can find us a guest who will help us unpack it and tackle your situation. So give me a ring at 910-668-BOSS or 2677 right now. And now I want to hear from you. What do you think about today's conversation? What did you think about today's conversation? Are you someone who's considering making your first home purchase? Do you still have questions about how to finance this deal or how to leverage debt in a way that makes sense and gets you cash flowing in the right direction? Let me know what your questions are and how I can further serve you by leaving me a comment on today's corresponding blog post, where, like I said, you'll also find the full enchilada, the whole story with all the details. Really, there were so many details I thought were important to include. I included them all at today's corresponding blog post, bossedup.org slash episode 88. And if there are more real estate investor bosses out there who are listening to this podcast, like Elizabeth, who came to our live show in New York and hung out with me in Denver for a hot second, I want to hear from you. What have you learned along the way? And why do you think there aren't enough women in real estate investing? How can we change that and change the world along the way? Tag me on social media with your questions, comments, and feedback at Emily Aries and at Boss.org and share this episode with the women in your world who you think could use it. Until next time, keep Boston in pursuit of your purpose and together we'll lift as we climb. Let's face it, speaking up at work can be really hard to do, especially for women and women of color. When the stakes are high and you've already worked so hard to just be the only woman in the room and you want to get everything right, you want to have all your facts and figures accurate before making your voice heard, 
It's just so much easier to stay silent instead. Researcher Deb Chahansky calls this loss of voice phenomenon. And it actually emerges in adolescent women at greater rates than men. And it sticks with us for the rest of our lives. Self-silencing behavior can actually become an unconscious habit unless we consciously engage in practicing our assertive communication skills. And we here at Bossed Up have set out to help women like you do just that. Speak Up, my live assertive communication course is back open for enrollment, and we're kicking off a new cohort launching this June. Over the course of eight life-changing weeks, you'll have access to interactive online curriculum and live weekly practice sessions where you, Irene and I, and a cohort of fellow Speak Up bosses who are owning their voice, overcoming the social messages that have taught us to keep silent, and really learning to strategically and assertively communicate when it matters most, we'll actually have the practice time to rewire our brains, create new neural pathways, and build better habits when it comes to speaking up with confidence and precision and assertively communicating in the workplace. Learn more and enroll today to secure your spot at bossedup.org speakup. That's bossedup.org speakup.